to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is all the Greenville poets. Well, most of them. The, the Greenville Poets Board, several of them. We have five members today. We have Myrna Stone, Amy Noel, Kathy Essinger, David Garrison, and uh, uh, Suzanne Kelly Garrison. I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> looking at the names. <laughs> it is so wonderful having all five of you today. It's going to be a wonderful episode. This episode is going to be a little longer than normal. And we're going to be talking about poetry from the perspective of an organization and individually. So I'm going to introduce each of the poets one at a time throughout the episode. And first, we're going to start with Catherine Essinger. She is the author of five books of poetry, most recently, The Apricot and the Moon, The Wings, or Does the Caterpillar Dream of Flight? Both are from Dos Madras Press. Her work has been featured on the Writer's Almanac and in American Life and Poetry. She has been nominated for Push Carts and the Best of the Net. She was Ohio's Poet of the Year in 2005, and she lives in Troy, Ohio, where she raises monarch butterflies. Catherine, would you like to read a poem? Oh, of course I will. Uh, I'm going to read a poem that's been anthologized quite a bit. The title is My Dog Practices Geometry. I do not understand the poets who tell me that I should not personify. Every morning, the Willow auditions for a new role outside my bedroom window. Today, she is Clytemnestra. Yesterday, a Southern belle lost in her own melodrama, sinking on her skirts. Nor do I like the mathematicians who tell me I cannot say the zinnias are counting on their fingers or the dog is practicing her geometry. Even though every day I watch her using the yard's big maple as the apex of a triangle from which she bisects the circumference of the lawn until she finds the place where the rabbit has escaped or the squirrel up the ante by climbing into a new Euclidean plane. She stumbles across the lawn, eyes pulling her feet along, gaze fixed on a rodent working the maze of the oak as if it were his own invention, her feet tangling in the roots of trees and tripping, yes, even over themselves, until I go out to assist by pointing at the squirrel and repeating, there, there. But instead of following my outstretched arm to the crown of the tree, where the animal is now lounging under a canopy of leaves, catching its breath, charting its next escape. She looks to my mouth, eager to read my lips, confident that I, who can bring her home from across the fields with a word, who can speak for the willow and the zinnia, can surely charm a squirrel down from a tree. So question for you, um, do other poets tell you not to personify? Because that's a really <laughs> part of the poem. Um, <laughs> I do I, not understand the poets who tell me that I should not personify. Uh, one poet, in, one rather well-known poet in a workshop told me, don't ever personify. And um, that's like throwing down the gauntlet, you know? <laughs> um, I, I think I knew what he meant. He meant, um, don't have talking dogs and dancing pigs and things like that. You turn into Walt Disney. And I don't think I do that, but I do think I use a lot of personification kind of as an expanded metaphor. Um, personification for me is kind of a form of empathy because I can't imagine being anything other than who I am. You know, So I give human attributes not exactly to animals, 
mostly I write about animals and human feelings come in behind them. And I, I just like the person I am when I'm with an animal. I'm a different kind of person. I think I'm a kinder, maybe more humane person when I'm with an animal. And animals remind you that this is serious business. Um, this is life and death, folks. And they take their lives very seriously. And so maybe we should also. <laughs> does that answer your question? It does, because I think it's weird to ask someone to unilaterally shut down an entire crafting technique without exempting for any caveats or anything, you know? <laughs> well, he was kind of full of himself. <laughs> That helps with those black and white statements, I think. <laughs> yes, it does. And it helps if you're famous. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm curious now. I want to ask who it was. <laughs> Morna knows. <laughs> you can put the screws to her. <laughs> not, on, not on the podcast then. <laughs> well, actually, two different poets have told me, don't personify. One, raking his hand through his hair, said, don't ever personify. And another was a little more subtle. <laughs> was it was it windswept when he did it like it? <laughs> yes yeah it was yeah a mane of hair <laughs> <laughs> all right so i want to ask as a group um and this is i think how did you guys build trust as a group like from the beginning how do you guys because you guys obviously all trust each other and and how did that become about do you think Jeez. I think for me, um, the newest member um, of the group is what I could tell instantly is the rigor and the um, determination and the seriousness with with which everybody takes their craft. Um, so for me, I trusted them because they were working hard on their own work. So I knew that they would give the time and attention that they gave their own work um, they, they would give mine as well. And so for me, I, I could tell that they were serious about, about their craft and their work. And so, you know, there's a trust inherent in, in success, of course, because um, all, of, all of the poets who took me in are incredibly successful, but also because they, they take themselves and their work seriously. Well, maybe not themselves seriously, but definitely their work seriously. Yeah. yeah. That's, can I jump in here? I, sure, sure. Okay. I think, you know, I think there's another element here and it's, it's that I think every single one of us understands and knows that we are nearly as invested in everyone else's career and their, and their craft as we are in our own. And, and there's that sense of we're not just trying to outdo one another that never, I don't think that ever happens. And we're mm -hmm. genuinely I mean, we could be a little upset, you know, somebody else got a prize and we didn't get it if we were in there, but, but we're, we're still genuinely happy that that happens for them because we, we are, I think we're really solid together. And that's a, and that's a lovely thing because you don't always find that in the world of poetry. <laughs> it can be cutthroat and very, very competitive. Yeah. How, how did it get started? How did the Greenville Poets coalesce? Uh, that's an interesting thing. I, I'll try to give you the short version. Um, <laughs> uh, I had, was taking a Kathy's a creative writing class at Edison State. She was teaching a class and I, I decided it was time for me to get serious about making, not just saying I was a poet, but actually becoming a real poet and getting published and all that stuff. This was, I think, in about 1980 something, maybe 83, 84, 85, something like that. Um, 
And I met a woman there who lived in Greenville. We started going back and forth together to the class. And then one day she said, why don't we start a writer's group in Greenville? I said, great, let's do it. So we started the, the Door County Writers Club. And through that, I met a woman named Miriam Vermilia, who became one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. And she was an artist and she was a fiction writer, but she wanted to write poetry. So she joined, the, I met her, she joined the Dark County Writers Club. And I also met a woman named Belinda Rusmiller, who was a fiction writer, but also was interested in doing poetry. So they came into the Dark County Writers Club. We had a, um, I'm sorry, I'm going on here, but we had a, uh, uh, a contest and we asked Kathy to judge it. And uh, the winner was Leanne Spidel, who was a teacher here in town and wrote wonderful poetry. And so eventually we all came together as a group at different times. I mean, people joined at different times or we asked them to come and join us at different times because then it was by invitation and it still is basically. Um, and then we became finally the Greenville Poets. That's really cool. And, you know, so you, you say that, you, that that invitations are sent out to someone. You're like, okay, you seem like... Nothing so far. I not get, did I hear that, hear that right? <laughs> no, no. I mean, when I say invite, we, we would... Uh, the way we normally do it is we want to make sure that anybody... that we, And it has to be a unanimous decision by everyone. That if one person says, no, it's not going to work for me, then it doesn't happen. Okay. But um, what we normally do is have people that we might be interested in inviting or we might be intrigued by come and, and come to, we invite them to at least two or three meetings. First of all, to see how they mesh with us because we want people that we can mesh with and that can mesh with us, that we can work with, that don't have towering egos where if you critique them, they get angry or upset. Although everybody eventually sometimes gets a little angry or upset. But um, what I'm saying is we wanna see how we interact with them and how they interact with us. And then if we are all solid, we invite them to join us. We've had at the most, um, for a very brief period, I think eight people coming. Mm-hmm. And at the least, there were three of us to begin with. So it varies. Okay. One, one thing that I think has helped us stay together, and I noticed this when I first um, got into the group, was that everybody was on board with meeting once a month and absolutely we were going to meet uh, no matter what. Um, I was in other groups that met now and then. If it's now and then, it becomes never. And uh, so the group said, we are going to meet and we're going to look at each other's poems and that's that. And I I think it's a subtle dynamic, but uh, as Myrna said, I think it's, um, choosing the right people and uh, and then sticking to it. Sure. Okay. And when, when people join, how does their object, how have new members, like when you've invited a member, they've just said, I'm going to join. How, how do their objectives change? Because I feel like one of the things that can be difficult for, especially creative nonprofits or creative groups um, that, people have ideas before they join a group, then they join a group and they immediately start trying to influence those ideas. How has that assimilation gone? And how have, how has the group kind of taken in new members without losing step? Well, I maybe, yeah, Suzanne, you talk about that. (laughs) 
I, I'm a, a fairly recent uh, member of the group, and I have uh, uh, the advantage of being at Myrna's before I was in the group and uh, just listening in, which was delightful. I was in another room and, and uh, listened in with, with uh, Myrna's husband, Tom, and we would, we would chat, but then also listen in. And um, that was just um, delightful because it was like, almost like listening and listening to a family that got together well, you know, that, that, stayed, that worked well together. And then I, I also remember the first time I heard the Greenville Poets years ago in a, um, a public setting. And I thought, wow, this is such good poetry. It's all of a type. I mean, it's, it's all, it's, it's unique. It's not like, oh, everybody's writing the same poem about the same thing or, you know, trying to, you know, put on a certain hat. I, and I, I was just, uh, I, there was such, so much admiration I had for the individuals in the group that, um, uh, you know, I didn't, didn't think, oh gosh, I got to join this group. I just thought, wow, these are very talented, very, uh, interesting people. Some of them have, have passed on now, uh, but um, it was just um, such a, an impressive uh, grouping of people that um, I don't think there was any, you know, attempt. There was, there was no, um, uh, and then later when I was asked to join, I thought, you sure? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm glad uh, that I've been able to, uh, to uh, sit with the group. But um, I, I never felt like there was any big, um, you know, well, I'm going to write that same poem and, you know, change a few facts and, you know, do it better than you. I just felt like everyone was true to their own self. And that there, there's something that I learned in, in or heard in grad school a long time ago, and that is people write poetry not to imitate Mallarmé, but to express something in themselves. And I, that's what I feel. And I, I feel a strong admiration for all the members of the group past and present. Um, those here today and those not here today and, and, and love too, because it's, it's like, I don't think you can share that part of yourself without feeling love for the individual who is you know, offering up very subjective, very personal um, points of view and, and aspects. So it's, to me, it's, it's, it's like, um, I don't see why poetry groups don't work if people are are honest. I, I don't see the big the big deal. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of like if you if there are talented people that get together and uh, people that uh, understand the importance of poetry and uh, value it, um, then everything follows. I don't know if that's you know, <laughs> I, I don't feel like we have any real s secret to you know we always do this, we never do that. Um, we have some rules to kind of keep things moving, but um, I, I think it's, uh, for me, I can stand back and I can say, wow, <laughs> what a group of people, you know, and I'm, I'm glad to be, uh, uh, have my place at the table. Yeah, and that's, that's really cool because I think it's, it's better to put the poets first versus saying like, well, we're, we're trying to like capture a movement and we're trying to move forward and you either conform yeah. or you don't, you know, um, that usually winds up being under the helm of an egotistical person, which is detrimental to the growth of everybody else. I, I think I know what Jeremy's asking. I've been in workshops that were incredibly competitive. Um, and all those people were going to go out into different aspects of their lives. 
and they were probably very young and very ambitious and putting someone else down seemed like a move for them to make at the time. But we're not like that. We see each other once a month. And if someone else has a poem accepted at a wonderful magazine, it also affirms you know, the work that you're doing. You think, oh, okay, I trust these people. They're making good decisions. And it feels good when someone else succeeds uh, because you've had some input there. Yeah, it does. And like, you know, I, I run a workshop and, and whenever anybody, I had a, I had a woman get a, a couple poems published that she workshopped through the workshop. She said, can I announce this? And I was like, of course, <laughs> of course you, can. you know, don't, don't hold back. And she's like, well, if it wasn't because of this workshop, I was like, I don't care. <laughs> Just let people know. That's cool. And I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I think that everything that you guys have said shows i know everybody else can't see the zoom call but <laughs> there's there's a lot of very obvious camaraderie that is, is pre-existing to this recording um i'm going to introduce suzanne now because uh <laughs> suzanne just took us in um <laughs> suzanne kelly garrison is an irish american author of the stolen child a coming-of-age novel set during the election of jfk in 1960 she has won two Montgomery County Culture Works Arts Grants for fiction and has published several short stories. An attorney and former assistant attorney general, she is currently a senior law lecturer at Wright State University. BA and JD from University of Kansas, MA in English from Indiana University. Suzanne, would you like to read us a poem? Yes, I would. Um, this is um, a, a poem that um, it's kind of an older poem, but it, uh, it, <laughs> it came from an interaction with my little niece, um, and it starts with an epigraph from the Bible. I'm not a big Bible person, but I, I, I like this, uh, this particular passage. This is from Genesis, King James Version. Um, the title of the poem is The Orb Weaver, or Orb Weaver is a type of spider. Um, Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. I asked my little niece Meg the name of the graceful creature we watch as it floats on silk between two rose petals. Cheryl, she whispers. I suppress a laugh, as my uncles did, when I announced that the stately white-barked trees in our yard were planted by the John Birch Society. <laughs> Big waits like God for the name is called an orb weaver. And look, she creates a new realm every day out of thin air, I say. Meg leans in and watches the spider as it lowers itself on a new thread, pulling the silver tightrope into an M before alighting on another leaf. The spider spirals on, trapping time and space in silent conversation with us. Caught in the web of language, Meg knows it is spelling out a confirmation of her name. Thank you. All right, Su Suzanne, you, so you're a fiction writer as well as a poet, and your book Stolen Child is a lyrical novel, um, which I think is fascinating because I like any hybrid style, anything. Um, so I, I, how much of Stolen Child is poetry, or at least informed by your poetic background? And how would you describe your style? Well, you know, I thought about that question. My style, I suppose, is, is lyrical. Um, in, in, the, in the novel, Stolen Child, uh, it, 
it began with, uh, I mean, it's the title comes from Yeats, you know, the stolen child. Um, and the epigraph there is come away, O human child, to the waters in the wild with a fairy hand in hand for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. And I think the, the point of view uh, in Stolen Child is something that can't help but be lyrical. That is a child's view of an adult world. Um, you know, they're very observant. They don't have the answers, although they think they have the answers. Um, and I think that makes it inherently lyrical. It's a fresh approach. I mean, a child approaching something has got to be fresh because the lots of things they do are for the very first time. And so I think it's I think it's the point of view that creates the lyricism itself, because if you let a child uh, run free through a page or a chapter, um, the way they see things, the uh, the contradictions that are so clear to them, and yet the adults don't see them at all. And uh, in this particular story, these stories, um, the, the child uh, narrator is nine years old, and um, she comes from a, a, an Irish family, Irish on both sides, and these particular Irish don't get along, even though they're from the same parts of Ireland, and they have different views. And, and she has one particular grandparent, who her grandmother, who is a very strict um, Roman Catholic, and yet she believes in the fairies, you know, so the child has to deal with the contradiction of, you know, who's causing all of these things that were, that are happening, you know, is it the fairies, you know, should I be more worried about the fairies than I am about God, and, you know, what's the difference between God and the fairies, so it, it, it sets up a, a way for the child to make these observations, which I think in and of themselves are, are lyrical, um, and she's crea created, uh, she's surrounded by a lot of sadness. There's, there's sadness in her family. Um, there's, um, you know, she's living with her grandmother at the time because of uh, some things in her family that are not working quite well. And um, so she's kind of thrust into this world of Irish immigrants who um, in and of themselves live in this mythy world of exiles. You know, they see, they see their, their past and they, they, they try to hold on to Ireland, yet try to become American at the same time. And uh, her grandmother was, was uh, believed that she was more Irish than Mamie, or more American than Mamie Eisenhower, you know, even though she believed in the, in the Galways from County Mayo. So I think it's, it's, um, I think it's kind of making sense of the adult world in a fresh way. And I think that may be a, 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 um, a, definition of lyricism because I think that the word poetry or poesis I think is <laughs> it's been a long time since grad school but I think it I, I think it's Greek and I think it comes from to make things new or to make things fresh and I think a child's point of view uh, in and of itself does that it's not to say all my poetry is is the child's point of view but in a way it's a naivete that you, know, you bring to a situation and try to be as observant as possible about things and try to make sense of it, um, even though the sense may not be the uh, <laughs> the consensus of everyone around you. So I don't know if that kind of went on too long, but uh, um, um, yeah, the stolen child. I, I mean, I think you know, Yates was always uh, you know, the Yates and Wallace Stevens. I think are probably my favorite American or, or not American, the 20th century poets and. Uh, um, I certainly like Jane Kenyon, and Jane Kenyon's not as lyrical 
in, in the way you would describe that, but she's very observant and makes um, connections that you don't often consider. And I think that's kind of like the child's naivete. Um, and Yeats, in even his earlier work, is very lyrical. And then he, he kind of grew into sort of uh, political, um, you know, as, as, as his country changed, he grew into, you know, responding to the, you know, the politics of the, of the era. And then even at the very end, uh, when he was writing um, about the rebellion in Ireland and about the, uh, the, the martyrs of 1916, you know, it still sounds, to me, it sounds lyrical because he names them out. He says, McDonough and McBride, Conley and Pierce, now and in times to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. And um, so he doesn't lose his sense of, um, uh, you know, just being not part of it, but a part of it. You know, I mean, he's, he, 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 he makes these observations as he goes on. And of course, his big famous one is he talks about the circus animals desertion. I can't quote that poem because I can't remember it anymore. But um, I think it's uh, it's 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 something that if, if you look at you're asking about me, but I'm telling you about Yeats because I studied a lot of Yeats in school. But uh, he he um, he kept the naivete. He kept the myth making process. You know, he he turned Ireland what was happening into Ir in Ireland. Not into you know, you know. Well, we've got um, you know Russian tanks at the border, and the Ukrainians are arming. But it was part of the myth of Ireland. It was part of the myth that that he knew as a child, and that he continued to fashion poetry out of. And to me, that's that's what lyricism is. I mean, that's my own my own view of it. Um, thanks for asking about Stolen Child. I I, uh, I got a big kick out of writing that <laughs> always wanted to write about that because uh, it was something that was fading away you know those those immigrants were uh had 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 passed on and the idea of these people that were trying to become american whatever that meant when they were really irish uh and then their grandchildren wanted to be more irish than american you know for for whatever reason so um but it's um it's, uh, you know, as I say, poetry is, is trying to make something fresh, you know, and a, and a child naturally does that because they don't know any better, you know, so. Yeah, my, sure. My two cents. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I wanted to ask you, a child, do you think that comes from a specific place? Like, is it their sort of surprise? Because we always, poets always search for surprise yeah. novel ways of introducing things or is it the wonderment or is it the um just taking things out of context into their own context because they don't have adult context yet to apply to situations like what do you, is it a specific thing or do you just think it's like childhood wonderment in general you know i think it's all of those things i think it's not one particular thing but i think you know a child struggles mightily to make sense of things because that's that's their job, you know, is to make sense of things. And when they observe the the incongruity of adults, you know, what they say and what they do, you know, uh, what they believe, what they say they believe, what how they act, those kinds of things. And um, so I don't know. I mean, to 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 not go too far afield, but what was Wordsworth's thing about you know the the the, the child uh, 
uh, trailing clouds of glory or something like that. You know, the idea of coming into this world with um, um, questions, all kinds of questions, you know, and it's, it's almost like they're not just, uh, you know, passive, you know, uh, travelers along the way. They've got all kinds of questions that need to be answered and the questions matter from day to day. Um, more so than I think adults, we, we kind of get busy with our jobs and, you know, um, getting the car serviced and, you know, stuff like that. I just had, I just smashed the back of our car into a thing of ice and Dave just put a new fender on the car. So that's what's been worrying me the last couple of days. You know? So I haven't been thinking so much about, you know, what it all means, but uh, um <laughs> I don't know. And that's not, and that's really is not to say that all my poetry is written from that point of view, but I think that point of view informs um, uh, poetry, you know, that we don't know, we don't really know, but we're making these observations and we're, we're kind of calling, you know, calling people out when, when the things don't match up the way uh, they possibly should. So. Sure, sure, sure. Right. And even with even with political poetry or you know poetry of a of a certain certain class or a certain gender or a certain you know political issue, it's it's still you're still making observations about incongru incongruities, and I think that's that is the nature of uh, lyricism. Okay, thank you for that very the very good answer. That was actually... very long answer. No, it was wonderful. It was very insightful. I appreciated it. <laughs> So let's let's turn to COVID as a group. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's had many struggles. Uh, so group struggles and individual struggles. What did you guys run into with COVID? You know, how did you circumvent things, and, and how are you guys doing now? Well, we we went to we went to meeting virtually, um, and things got really hairy last um, I guess last winter or the winter before. Boy. How time flies. We're really not having fun. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and so really we had not gotten together physically, which which uh, for me it was amazing to imagine or amazing, amazing to experience how different it was to do the Zoom and not be able to read people's bodies, language body language, and some of the some of the more subtle things that we read around our, the table here without even thinking about it. So, and there was also the lack of being able to have fellowship before and sometimes drink wine and, you know, eat food and all that stuff together, like a, like a fam, the family in a sense that we are. So um, that was really tough. And I think it was particularly tough for, and I hope I'm not saying this out of line, but Suzanne, because Suzanne loves being here and she always loves to sort of interact with Tom. And, you know, it was like, back to the getting back here which we did twice last summer and it was just wonderful it was like i fed my soul and i'll bet it did everybody else's as well although we haven't talked about that yeah it, it was great just to, to see everyone i i personally just hate zoom and um i do a lot of teaching as does amy too on on zoom or webex or other other platforms and to me it makes things worse it's kind of like if you miss somebody you miss them and you can picture them in, in three dimensions <laughs> <laughs> or you can picture you know what happened when someone said, said something you know and the, the time kind of goes by in a different way 
but when you're on Zoom, particularly at the, the, the beginning of Zoom, I resisted any kind of Zoom thing because it just seemed like it made things seem worse. It just made things just harder. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's hard to, um, and Amy, you could probably speak to this too, but you know, teaching on a platform like this where you, 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 you can't read people, you can't, you don't get a feel for it. You know, uh, people are pretty much down in the mouth and you're trying to cheer them up with something funny. And there's not a lot of funny stuff in law. I mean, they're just, you know, that's a stretch to try to teach business law and to make something funny. But, um, and then we, but we did meet at, at Myrna's at Christmas, which is our, our standard uh, tradition and, and Myrna should talk about her house, her home and, and all the things that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, all, all that she's invested in, in her home. It's a very unique situation to be in. And um, uh, that was, was so great. And it's kind of like Myrna lives in, is it, is it 17th century or is it 16th century? 18th. 18th. Well, yeah. one of those centuries. Uh, so you, you're basically stepping out of time when you go to Myrna's, and so that, in a, in a, in essence, maybe that's the secret of our success. You know, going to Myrna's and like shutting, <laughs> shutting time altogether, and then you go in there, you know, and there's a, um, a musket over the fireplace, and there's you know a central uh, fireplace, you know, uh, typical of that that uh, that architecture, and. Uh, um, you know, you see these mirrors that have been around for uh, hundreds of years, and you think, gosh, think of the people that have looked in those mirrors. Where are they now? And, and who am I now looking in this mirror? So, you know, you shed something when you go into Myrna's, and I think it's a, a great equalizer, perhaps, and uh, that helps with the, 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 the cohesiveness of the group. Sure. Can I make just a little defense of Zoom? Sure. Uh, I, I, I won't believe it, but go ahead. <laughs> um, no, I don't want, um, I would much prefer, you know, that we met together. I miss the sound of Myrna's pencil on the table yeah. and the food, and, and I miss all of that stuff. But Zoom has allowed us to bring in people that we would not have been able to otherwise. Yes. Uh, Marjorie Maddox and Mary Jo White and people, uh, poets in the area who would not make the trip all the way to Greenville. Um, when we have an empty space at the table, gee, we can invite them to come on Zoom. And I think that has been beneficial for us. Um, but I mean that we miss the camaraderie. I would like to have seen all of those people in person. But if, if you have to get together on Zoom, it's better than nothing. <laughs> and yeah. I amen to that. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is the benefit. Right. Yeah. And I've been able to attend and I'm sure this is true for, um, you know, for many of you here and many of your listeners, I've been able to attend conferences that I wouldn't be able to afford otherwise with the travel and the lodging. Um, and I, and I will say I was, I was skeptical. Um, I attended the frost place, um, conference on poetry. Um, and because I knew the director, um, Gal Gabby Calvacaresi, and I knew that she would just have a warm, inviting platform, no matter what. So I gave it a try, and um, and I've really got a lot out of it, more than I thought I would in a in a two D setting. Um, we had dance parties, and we you know we still had um, we had readings, and and still had the um, 
the camaraderie part aspect of it, which I wouldn't have thought we that was possible. Um, but yes, I'd love to be there in person. But it, like Kathy said, it's afforded us some experiences that I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have had. But I do miss the snacks. I'm pretty sure that's why they invited me into the group. They, they talk about my work, but it's really because I brought good snacks while they were when they were when they were interviewing me. Yeah. I do that's miss the secret the to getting into the group. Is it? That's right. That's right. That's right. That's a free tip. That would work on me and my wife. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. All right, Amy, actually, since you're talking, I'm going to introduce you next. Um, okay, so Amy Noel's essays and poems have been published and anthologized in Witness, Michigan Quarterly Review, uh, Provincetown Arts, Belt, and elsewhere. She is proud to have been the Daytonian of the Week in 2020 and the Ohio Arts Council's Summer Fellow at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown for 2016, as well as a recipient of the OAC's 2020 Individual Excellence Award for Poetry. Find out more at amynoel.net. And we'll have all of your individual websites on the, in, in, in the bios and stuff, which I encourage people listening to check out. Um, Amy, would you like to read us a poem? Thank you. I would love to. I'm actually going to read something newer. So this is not out there yet, but um, this is a poem I brought to the group and, and kind of speaks to the help that they give um, when we're writing. The Child and the Quicksilver. When the streetlight breaks, I coax its mercury into a Dixie cup to paint myself silver. Nightly, I sluice Quicksilver from palm to palm, watching my lifeline drown under its weight. Each time I pour the liquid mirror back into the cup, there is less of me reflected. When only a bead remains, I swirl it around the bottom as if quickening minutes on a clock, then pull it into my navel to prove I am metal fed. Listen, I say, I can float steel on my surface. Look at my coat of shine. Thank you. Thank you. And Amy, you've described yourself as a working class poet. And so I'm, I'm curious, is that uh, poetry about the, the working class, like Philip Levine style, or is it the, in the language and the aesthetic or mix of both maybe? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, I appreciate that, that nuanced question. When I first started um, writing which is relatively new. Um, I'm really new to poetry. Um, I started with like actual voices of workers. So it was it was um, steel workers. I grew up in Buffalo, so Bethlehem Steel was big um, in my in kind of my history and the geography and the landscape of the city. So I started with specific voices that I didn't feel were being heard. Um, workers who had been um, processing uranium during war times and didn't know, and um, workers who aren't being given health benefits um, once the once the plant shut down, stuff like that. So very much in the style of Philip Levine. And that being said, of course, he's he's the the poet we all point to when we talk about working class poetry. So um, so I also felt like there was something missing from from the canon, essentially, um, in terms of those voices. Um, 
And then it shifted when I started writing less about specific workers and, and getting away from some of the research and writing, my, you know, my own. Uh, I found the aesthetic of, of the city didn't leave anyway. So it, it's very much about the imagery, um, you know, growing up on the lake and a lot of steel images and very muscular um, kind of details in my work, I would say. So it's it's both. Um, it, it started as specific and and it has become more of the language and kind of, uh, you know, who I am when I write because I cannot separate myself from you know, from the city. Um, and often I feel like I'm in, I'm in, I've got a foot in both places, you know, um, you know, I'm growing out of a really low working class um, area and family. And then, and, and I'm not quite there yet. And then, you know, I'm an, in academics and I'm not quite there yet either. So it's, it's kind of like this occupying, you know, multiple spaces and not feeling really like I can get a handhold, kind of it's very mercurial, like I can't get a handhold on, on either either space. If only you could collect so, it in a cup. Uh, what's that? <laughs> if only you could collect it in a cup. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right, exactly. So it's a little both, yeah. So I looked towards like um, Rochelle Hurt, um, Michelle T, and, and kind of read a lot of their work. Afa Michael Weaver writes a lot of working class poetry. So um, so I look to them for inspiration and also go home when I can. My mom still lives there. And I just, I can feel a sense of shift when I, when I go home rather than, um, you know, Midwest. I, I write differently when I'm at our cabin like in the middle of the cornfield than I do when I go home and visit my mom. I can really, really feel the shift. So, yeah. Yeah. And and when you when you say that that something was missing from working class poetry canon, what did you mean by that? Well, um, specifically women's voices. Um, I yeah, I did a lot of research of the women who. Um, filled those jobs in the 40s. You know, I read the Life magazine kind of articles and, and spotlights. Um, I read um, a couple of anthologies about women who were supporting the men and kind of what they what they were doing. Um, a lot of laundry. They were doing a lot of laundry. Um, but you know, kind of what it means to scrabble a life out of a out of steel town and also the camaraderie that comes from that um, from everybody going in a shift to the same place and having a shared experience so um, so I think and even specifically um, working class poets you know not necessarily steel mill poets but the, the voice of, of working class poets nowadays um, I think so often people are too busy working to be able to sit down and, and have kind of the benefit of writing their story on, on a piece of paper. It's, it's a luxury um, that I don't take for granted, for sure. Sure. And, you know, I, I don't want to bust, bust out my arsenal of anecdotes too much, but my, my sister was a welder. She specialized in welding and she was around all men. And she mm -hmm. described many times, like kind of what you're saying is that like, she had never really thought that the experience would be different for her, but the mm -hmm. experience had never been described for her in a way that would include her. <laughs> she said this to me when she was, 
not in those words i'm paraphrasing some but you know she was like 17 when she told me this and i thought it was a really interesting so it's interesting interesting you say that i'm really drawn to your answer i think it's cool mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it is sorry go yeah, ahead. it is interesting yeah and um and women you know i've read some interviews and talked to some women who they they didn't have many choices it's like you could fit in um you could put up with some of the comments or the outright you know harassment um and keep your job or you know or you could you could fight it and possibly you know not keep a job so um so i don't think that is told very often either so yeah conform or suffer basically right right Right. your options right well it's a lot of you published books during the pandemic so um you know, I know I asked individual or, or as a group, but how how has COVID impacted uh, each of you individually, and has that affected the dynamic between you? I would uh, say one thing that most small press poetry books are sold at readings, and no one has been able to give a reading for two years, other than virtual readings, I suppose. And I don't know how many books get sold that way, but um, my book came out right as the uh, pandemic started and it hasn't sold very well. I'm hoping that uh, when we get through this and we can give readings again, that um, I'll be able to give a few readings and maybe sell a few books. That's just on the, on the subject of selling books. Uh, I'm, glad that the book came out and um, it's gotten some attention but anyway well I published two books during the pandemic I hadn't published anything for years so I bring out two books during the pandemic that doesn't seem like a smart thing to do Um, and without social media I think that book would have just fallen dead from the press Um, But I did do some virtual readings and with the support of um, um, local groups and uh, local readers, that went pretty well. Uh, My last book, the chapbook about raising monarchs, um, I was able to sell pretty nicely on some of the the interest groups uh, on that particular topic. Uh, joint venture is a and uh, monarch maniacs they call it um, those sites you'd be surprised how many people raising butterflies are also interested in poetry which was a niche I never thought existed <laughs> but um, but that book has done actually pretty well better than some of my others simply because I put it out there and I mentioned that anything that I made on the book I was giving to other organizations that were supporting monarch research. Um, the the other book, The Apricot and the Moon, I don't think has sold as well. Um, but thank you to my friends who um, put together readings and um, and helped promote the book. And and thank you for people like David who reviewed it. So how's it going, Myrna? <laughs> oh, you mean, you mean <laughs> my book? Yeah, not well, because um, frankly, I have never been very good at promoting myself. Um, I didn't hear the clarion call to do that. And I don't get on Facebook very much. I think I, I mean, I did, I did one reading. um, 
and I've got, uh, I'm going to be doing one in April uh, with Lit Youngstown, or not, it's the first Wednesday, uh, Karen Schubert, that with Lit Youngstown, that entity. Mm-hmm. But boy, um, things have been slow. And I'm not worried, about, I mean, I'm really not worried about sales. Um, I know that I can, I think I can get some publicity for it uh, at a radio station in Cincinnati because the person who, um, who, who has a little interview time there and looks at uh, literature liked my last book. And she said, when you get another one and things are great, you know, let me know, I wanna, I wanna interview you again. So I know something like that will come up, but I've gotta get, I've gotta get my butt off this chair and get busy or maybe sit here and get much busier at promoting it somehow. Um, this is a first, Myrna, using the yeah. word but. That <laughs> <laughs> well, I could have said arse, but I, you know. The sign of civilization is deteriorating. 11.06 a.m. February 13th. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, anyway, oh, I did, I've also sent it out for review at a couple of places, and one of them sounded like they were going to do it, so that would be nice. And one more thing. Kathy is reviewing it for Vincent Brothers to do. Yeah, which is lovely. Yeah. Thank you, Kathy. Yay. <laughs> that was a fun project. Yeah. Oh, thanks, sweetie. So what obstacles have you guys, not COVID related necessarily, but over the 30 years of operation, what obstacles have you run into and how, how did you solve those those things? Because I think, you know, the reason I'm asking this question specifically is Ohio in general, poetry sales are booming all over the country, and there are a lot of new like literary groups up. And I think this is a question that a lot of people will be interested in hearing: is like a group of people that have been around for a long time that know each other really well. What did you guys deal with? Were there, there things that almost broke the group? Did you? How did you overcome it? Or even if it's minor stuff, just like ah, well, you know, someone got my mailbox wrong, and all my books were sent to the the church nearby or something. <laughs> you know, I'd like to I'd like to, to address that just very briefly. Um, we are, we are very honest in our critiques because there is no point in not being honest. And, you know, there's always our, you, we all have egos because that's, we're human, but we try to be as forthright and as gentle about it as possible. We're not, we don't all think alike either. So sometimes we get in arguments. Sometimes we have a little, a little heat going on, a little temper going on because we're human. And, but we never let that get in the way, I think, of our, camaraderie our friendship and that and i have always said honest to god if i didn't have this group if i wasn't in this group i would not have a single book to my name i know that because i'm lazy and because i wouldn't have that 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 ability to have this feedback which is so important um and i'm sorry i lost track of the other part of the question what what would you repeat that please jeremy because i'm losing my train of thought here Sure, sure, sure. It's okay. it's what as a group did you guys run into that was a serious problem and how did you guys overcome that? Okay. Initially early on we had uh, we invited people that we then this was before we were sort of vetting people to be honest. And maybe we had them here once or maybe we just invited them to come in and then thought, "Okay, another member because we, you know, we wanted to get bigger." Uh because it was just basically in the beginning, three of us. And uh, those turned out badly, generally speaking, because we didn't give them the opportunity to 
sit with us and to see what it was that they were interested in and whether we could actually mesh. Um, so that was an issue. And then we had to somehow tell them that we weren't gonna do it anymore. I'll tell you a story, a quick story. There was a guy that was convinced he was a part of the group, although we hadn't made that formal. And he kept calling me because we were meeting at my house, our old house. And um, I think he had attended a couple of times and he just lived down the road. And finally I had to lie to him and said, well, we've disbanded. I'm sorry, we're no longer an entity. <laughs> <laughs> I flat out like, boy, you know, I'm well, so relieved. listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in deep doo-doo with us today. <laughs> you cannot trust our deflections. We will. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't hear any of that. <laughs> okay, I'm shutting up now. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I don't think anybody started a group. I don't even care if it's like listening to sesame street story hour like if you anybody that's made any group has had someone show up where you're like mm, i don't know <laughs> <laughs> <It's so true. laughs> we, we have had a problem most recently because uh belinda is anti-vaccination and we were we just decided we weren't willing to meet mano a mano uh with her if she wasn't going to get vaccinated because we we just didn't feel it was safe for her or for us so that that has been a problem and we don't know as yet how that's going to be resolved so Mm -hmm. we miss her we do tremendously and i think the great thing about the way we conduct the group is that we've been honest and Belinda has been honest and, you know, we've, because we're such a close group, we've been able to say truthfully, um, this is, this is important to us. We, we, you know, we love, we love you. Um, and we want to keep everybody safe. So it, it has been the strength of the group that we've been able to say these things honestly and kind of handle it in a way that all members feel comfortable. Although we do, we miss her terribly. It also makes an interesting comment about uh, just the technological divide in our country. Uh, We have good at Wi-Fi and good access and she does not. That's right. Um, That is gonna be a huge problem. I think just for the country in general, I hope somebody's taking it on because I can't understand it all. I think another, another trauma that we've had has been losing people. Uh, yes. Oh just since I've been the gr- in the group, uh, two people have have died: Deanna and um, Erica. 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 Um, well, Miriam uh, originally. Miriam was back at the beginning. Miriam died. So when someone in your group dies, dies, it's a real trauma to the group, and you have to kind of reform and go on. So true, David. I uh, that that is true. Leanne, tremendous loss. Uh, is uh, uh, moved away and um, is living in assisted living now, and um, you know, um, you just it, it's it's um, you know the, the the question invariably is going to come up of you know well, how is your work? Do you start? Does everybody start to write the same poem or something like that? And we absolutely don't. But you count on certain people for certain to, to add a certain thing to the, the, the critique, you yeah. know, like mm-hmm. like Belinda could add 
<laughs> stuff that you would just totally miss otherwise, particularly things dealing with uh, nature or, or details or whatever. And, and same with, with Leanne Spidel, who was, uh, um, man, I remember the first time I heard her read and I thought, wow, she is really something and so down to earth and so humble about, you know, how good she is. And, um, you know, I just miss her comments on, um, she used to leave me little margin notes and <laughs> that's so much to me, you know, and, and just, um, you know, and, uh, she used to always say, I'm the oldest, per oldest person in the room or the oldest person alive or something like that. She always had these, these uh, comments. And, um, and, and Erica, it, Kathy was a, a great friend of Erica's and um, she was such an admirable person from Austria. And boy, she knew her opera. She knew, you know, European <laughs> culture. And, and she was just such an interesting, lovely woman. So. You know, I miss paper. I miss paper that, that we could bring home from a meeting and say, oh, okay, yeah. what did oh, you yeah. say? Yeah. Yeah. I miss notes. <laughs> I miss doodling. Yeah, I miss your doodles. <laughs> you do great doodles. Yeah. I miss getting an email like a week later with someone's like, I can't read your handwriting. What does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> that too. That's, that's true. Yeah. We always, yeah. It keeps you in touch with people throughout the month. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, we always write our names on, on each other's poems as if you couldn't tell who it, know, was, who it was yeah. based on our comments yeah like who if writing about Robert Frost who right that? yeah who could that possibly be or who decided that my last stanza should be my first stanza I mean of course it's Kathy I mean of course is it Jeremy who always makes that note <laughs> Kathy is our choreographer you know it's kind of like she 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 will read something and and uh, she she will always be right too. She'll she'll say I can right. <laughs> scratch out the entire first stanza, put the last stanza second, put the second stanza fourth, and you know, and you go really, and then you do it, and you go, oh my god, <laughs> you know? it, does, it does feel different. It's my yeah. only talent. <laughs> I, know where something, I, I know where something begins. I'm serious. Mm -hmm. It's my only talent. <laughs> what you say. Is that I specialize in gravitation and gravity holds the universe together. That's what you tell That's me. True. <laughs> oh, that is true. And we've all we've all uh, empathized and felt with uh, Amy, who's teaching high school, oh and uh, in her particular situation, she's had to teach face to face, online, uh, everything in between. You know, with large classes and a large number of classes, and um, you know, maybe we have. Let that be unsaid, but that that was you we 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 felt your pain through that, you know, it just was a such a uh, an admirable thing that you that you did and how you did it. And and knowing you, I know you didn't leave anything undone. You know, you did it you did it both ways completely and for the benefit of, of your students who are who are lucky, lucky kids. So thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, it's true, though. I'd, I'd like to introduce David now. Um, David Lee Garrison it was named Ohio Poet of the Year in 2014 for his book, Playing Bach in the D.C. Metro. The title poem of which was featured by Ted Couser on his website, American Life in Poetry, and read on the BBC in London. His latest is Light on the River from the Das Madras Press. And David, would you like to read a poem? 
Yes. Um, I am um, going to read a poem about a friend of mine who died of AIDS. And um, I, I write lots of times about people and lots of times my poems come from memories. Uh, this poem kind of coalesced with a um, series of memories. Uh, I knew this man all my life. And so these memories came together in the poem. It's called Long Division. When as children, we teased him with the nickname Carrot Top. Don shot back, Carrot Tops are green. In his 20s, though, he bleached his hair a rusty blonde for his agent, who helped him keep the other secret. Don was a singer and a comedian who played the straight man. He had cried in grade school over long division, and we knew he must have cried alone as he kept dividing up his life. It was longing, not faith, that sold his gospel album, and his pop cover was, You Don't Know Me. Don never came out and said anything, and we just nodded when he told us about the woman back east he was engaged to. Once, after three scotches, he complained in tears that the hardest thing in life is being who you are. To the end, he insisted that what he had was stomach cancer. His last year hunched him over like a question mark. But when they laid him out weighing 91 pounds, he looked straight again. Now, you, you once had, had said that your poems emerge from memories. Um, but what, what part of the memory do you find is easy, easiest to translate into words? And how do you build a memory out into a piece of writing? Well, lots of memories have words with them, carry words with them. What really triggered this poem was um, I was at a um, friend's house and the, the wife there was red, had red hair and she told this story about telling people when they called her carrot top, she said, carrot tops are green. And that, yeah, I'd been waiting for a long time for something to trigger the poem. And it was that line that got me writing it. Um, but then, I mean, I had wanted to write a poem about this because uh, I had been so um, moved and saddened by uh, Don's, Don's life and the fact that in, in my generation, nobody came out if they were gay. It, it just wasn't done. Um, and so he had to suffer his whole life uh, in the closet. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, a lot of memories come with words with them. Um, but the other thing is memory, I think, um, throws out extraneous stuff and you remember um, the key images. Um, memory has a very strong effect on, on, on lyricizing an event, so to speak, or a life or whatever. I find it much easier to write about something that happened 30 or 40 years ago than to write about current events. I, I don't think I would do very well if I tried to write a poem about the imminent invasion of uh, the Ukraine. Um, 
but I think uh, I could write about, I write, actually, I write a lot about high school, even though I graduated from high school in 1963. Um, but um, I think that it demonstrates the power of, um, of memory. I also, this poem um, is a demonstration of how we've influenced each other. I, I think one of the strongest images in the poem is the line, his last year hunched him over like a question mark. And that was suggested by Kathy. And uh, it, it just, I shamelessly grabbed a hold of it and put it into the poem. Um, so, and, and I, I think lots of times um, pe people in the group say, well, you don't need this or you don't need that. You can, you can get rid of that. And, and that's, very, very helpful. I, I, there was a lot of poems that I could say that were, I think, pretty good, but they got published because um, the, the group helped me put the finishing touches on it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Now, one of the themes I think that's really come out of seeing you, the, the five of you interact, is that you guys are really close friends, which is really cool. Um, so what does that mean for the group's sustainability? Do you plan, you know, if, if all of you decided I, I'm done now, <laughs> what would happen to the Greenville Post? Would it continue? And what kind of advice do you have for, you know, any type of creative group that wants to create a sustaining force that moves forward? Young blood. Okay. Yeah. Well, set I think some rules and stick to it. Yeah. Set some rules for your group, how you're going to do things, how you're going to invite new members, when you're going to meet, and just stick to it. Uh, just don't deviate from that. Mm -hmm. Now, you had said that you guys had some rules. What, what are those rules? What, what things do you guys adhere to no matter what? Well, I think we do just the traditional workshop stuff, don't we, Myrna? Yes, absolutely. Um, we can we go around the table. Yeah, yeah, we go around the table. Um, it, you know, the procedure is one person, we just go around the table, a person reads their poem. Um, we don't say anything when they're doing it. They're quiet while we critique it. You know, normally, if we're at the table, we um, put our, our comments on the paper and when we're all ready, we all have made our comments on paper, we go around the table and read those comments to the poet. And they should not speak or answer any questions. We don't want that happening. We want uh, each person to, to say what they have to say before the poet then can say whatever they want to say. So that's pretty much, that is the workshop model in a sense, isn't it, Kathy? It is for me, uh, <laughs> the way I've always done workshops, um, because if, if you... If you have a conversation between the poet and the rest of the group while you're trying to critique, you're not going to get anywhere. So they have to be quiet. <laughs> and then we give them five minutes of rebuttal when we're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also we don't, we, we let them read the poem without, I mean, we listen to the poem without looking at it on the page, but I think is a, a, a very interesting thing because the difference between what you hear and what's actually your response to what's on the page can sometimes be very helpful, I think. Of course, on Zoom, I cheat. 
I, you know, I'm sitting here, I, I, I have them in front of me, I read them right along. So I just point that out. <laughs> well, we should point out that that takes a long time. When you go around the table, if there are six people, it takes a long time to critique one poem. And you've spent, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes on someone's poem. Yeah. Um, which is why we need food when we're there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we need to eat constantly while we're doing this. Otherwise, it would never work. We do. And the other thing is we, we give, we give, I don't think there's ever been a time that somebody so oh, can't we move on because we give it, it what that poem demands. And I think that's another reason that we're successful. We give it the time it needs, even if it means we miss something else that, that we might have had scheduled. So Except for football. I'm sorry. Oh, yes. <laughs> we should point out. Sometimes. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. We're here. The recording will be done and over by the time that starts. Amy is, Amy is a big Bills fan. I'm yeah. a big Chiefs fan. We don't yeah. even. We don't We're not watching. Oh. Yeah. Go yeah. oh, Rams. Get <laughs> out of here. Mm. <laughs> All no right. AFC cool. is what I say. <laughs> <laughs> and for my final question, what would you say is the Greenfield Poet's biggest success or, or some of its biggest successes? Easy. I can answer that, at least from my point of view. We have published a lot of books, uh, more than 14. I think there were at least 17 at last count. Mm, probably. Uh, yeah. Because, um, but but I think the fact that we have that we have been so successful at just getting our stuff out there into the world. We've, we've won contests, we've been awarded um, all kinds of things. And I think that's remarkable when you think about the fact that, that after all this time, we're still even writing. Maybe that's another triumph and success. I'm, uh, I'm gonna be 78 in three weeks and uh, God, I can't believe that. I, yeah, yeah, I'm old. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I'm still writing, I'm still producing. And I think, as I said before, it wouldn't have happened at all without this group. So that's a triumph for each of us that we can do that. Well, can I point out that we're basically self-taught until Amy came along, no one in the group had an MFA. And we kind of grew up together going to workshops uh, paying attention to each other's work, giving each other tips on where to submit things. And um, we taught ourselves. Myrna and I talk about this sometimes because I can remember those days when we didn't have books published and we were hoping to, that that would happen. And uh, there was this hunger to do that, but we weren't quite sure how. And so we just helped each other and we taught ourselves. That's true. That's mm -hmm. true. It's very cool. Very cool. Okay. Well, th thank you very much. I'm going to, at the, for the very end, I'm going to introduce Myrna and have Myrna read. Um, <clears throat> Myrna Stone is the author of six full-length books of poetry, The Resurrectionist Diary, uh, uh, including The Resurrectionist Diary from uh, Dos Madres Pet Press. She has received three Ohio Arts Council Individual Excellence Awards in Poetry, a full fellowship at the Vermont Studio Center, the 2017 New Letters Poetry Prize, and her poems have appeared have been nominated for Pushcart Push Prizes and featured in Poetry Daily, Verse Daily, Autumn Sky Poetry, and Everyday Poems, and have appeared in journals such as Poetry, Plowshares, Boston Review, Triquarterly, and more. 
Stone is a founding member of the Greenville Poets. Stone, would you like to read us? I would love to. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> okay, I'm, I think I'm going to read um, the first section of a six-section poem, which is the title poem of the book, The Resur Resurrectionist Diary. So, <clears throat> so here it is. Oh, I should tell you that a resurrectionist is actually a body snatcher. The Resurrectionist Diary, Wednesday, September 17, March, 1830. Yesterday, half past the darkling hour, we took from Pauper's Corner in the South End burying ground, a woman's freshly interred body, her face a book writ large in pain, and her two infant daughters laid upon her breast, their torsos joined at the sternum, each malformed and monstrous. In fields such as these, there are no obvious arrays of sorrow, no mausoleums, vaults, urns, stones, the distressed earth emblem enough of loss, which on the morrow must need to be profit. If not the life John and I envisaged, it is an enterprise that feeds and clothes us and our boys. Want, we persuade ourselves, defies all seemly creeds in our own human covenants, as Boston's environs riddle with graves. Less than a day hence, two more will be dug on the Tremont side of the old granary grounds in a plot adjacent to Park Street Church. Their tenants, a young Tuscan couple of raw morals and strange beauty, lost in a blatant act of ardor as their coachman ran amok. They, like the mother and babes, are the very stuff of anatomous dreams and will not lack for buyers. Thus, John delays supper tonight to prepare for tomorrow's retrieval. I hear him in the shed as I write, and Belle's soft nickering as he moves about her. Often I think if we do evil in God's eyes, our good Belle is surely blind to it. Now comes the bells of shovels dropped in the wagon's bed, the whoosh canvas tarps, the ticking clatter of shuttered lanterns. Our work is not without risk. We take only the dead, never their goods, never their souls. Such is our worth. Thank you. And if if this were an interview where I was just interviewing you, I'd spend like half of it just asking about this, this poem. This poem is so cool. Um, so this 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 poem won the, the 2017 New Letters Prize in Poetry. And before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, wrote, I, I'm just shove all the questions I had aside for it. Just ask you, how did this start and, and how did this project go? Okay, I, I was, uh, I'd never heard of what, I've never heard of the resurrectionist trade, but for five centuries in Europe and in a century and a half in this country, people were robbing graves. That is, they were taking the bodies. They were body snatchers. They would not take the grave goods because if they had taken like the, the gowns and the rings and the jewelry and everything else that people were buried in, they could have been prosecuted. But because they were only taking the bodies, the Catholic Church was completely against it, but they weren't always being punished. The first instance in Europe was in the 1316 when four people were had raised a body and were uh, put away for it. But in this country, I've, and I'm, I learned all this when I was doing research because I found out what the resurrectionist trade was from a friend who had a friend who was playing a resurrectionist at the fair at New Boston, which is an 18th century trade mm -hmm. fair. So um, 
I just got obsessed. I mean, everybody in the group can tell you I get obsessed with things. And the interesting thing for me, at least, <laughs> was that I was working, uh, already working with poems about women, because I think there were women in history, such as Katerina Vermeer and um, Maria Clem, who was Edgar Allan Poe's mother-in-law and also his blood aunt, who had been sort of overlooked by history or underappreciated or even disparaged by history. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna write about this. I'm gonna write about a woman named Maggie because I was researching Boston where they had a great, they, they created a law or a bill that made, um, that made it legal for people to put for anatomists, okay, doctors, to be able to receive the bodies of people who had not been claimed, who had died and not been claimed by any relatives. And they, they had, I think that was 1834 or something like that, which put the resurrectionists out of business. So um, I thought, okay, we're going to have Maggie as an Irish Catholic living in Boston in a poor area, and she's going to be talking about her life. And I just, I know this is going to sound stupid and corny, but honest to God, I think she, she was just, the lines were just dictated to me almost. It was so easy to write. Mm -hmm. And I loved researching language. What would she say? How would she say it? That's what fascinates me all the time when I do these, these, um, these kind of poems where I'm speaking in people's voices. So that was, that was the genesis of it. And the other part of it is, and I know this too is crazy, when they told me I was the finalist for the New Letters Prize, they said, we're, we're going to call the winner at 10 o'clock on next week at such and such. And I came down here at 10 till 10 and I sat down and I knew the phone was going to ring. And I knew they were going to tell me that I won it. And I afterwards, I, I, when she call, called me and told me this, I was a gibbering idiot. I kept saying, oh, I can't believe it. And I couldn't, even though I had been completely sure. Of so that, that was my, that's my story of this. Um, it was, it was a great experience. I loved it. I wish I had, I wish every poem would come to me like that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially one that hits so much success, you know, it's, 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 yeah, lucky it, me. Honestly, the, the piece is really good though. It, it is evident that you had a, a whole career leading up to making this poem. It, it's oh. a Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. So this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And all of you guys, thank you so very much for coming on. I, this is thank you. You've been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Reese Austin. <laughs> yeah.